Welcome, friends, to Church is Changing, podcast ministry of the United Methodist Church. I'm Paul Nixon, and I am here with my friend Melissa Mayer from Houston, Texas. Hello, Melissa. Hey, Paul. Good to be with you. It's always good to be with you, and you are, you've are you sort of become my go-to person around issues around recovery ministry because for several years, you were pastor of Mercy Street in Houston, which is an amazing fellowship that ministers within various arenas of recovery and in that Houston community. And now you have a new job. What's your new job? Well, I wanted to say on the front end, my new job is I'm now working for the bishop here in the Texas Annual Conference. And the title, as titles go, is Director of New Ministry Strategies. I think that's twofold. Number one, we recognize that times have been changing, so grateful for your work on this podcast. And then secondarily, we've got to actually fill in the canvas of what that means. So a little bit of room to play and innovate here after a pretty rough season of COVID and disaffiliations. You know, about 20 years ago, I had a similar job with a different title, but it was essentially the same thing, also working for United Methodist Bishop. But you know what? The world has changed in 20 years. So a lot of what you're working on and thinking about is sure going to be different than what we were thinking about then. It is really a very strange season. And as you are helping churches and looking for innovation, what what has been an interesting discovery during the first, I don't know, 90 days of this? Have there been some surprises? I think what I've loved most is most of my ministry, my 15 years in ministry has been located here in the Houston area. And so now the opportunity to go into every county in our annual conference and see what's going on, particularly in rural communities, the vibrancy of our laity, the resiliency of, because like many, most of our disaffiliations were geographically centered. And so we have entire counties now where there was not a United Methodist presence remaining. And it was a group of laity who said something more than just, hell no, we won't go. They said, we're going to be a part of a church that welcomes everyone. And so it's just been reinvigorating to be around that type of energy and missional focus. The other thing is perhaps no surprise. In the local church, we can get stuck on a a cycle of rinse and repeat. (laughs) Mm. And across the annual conference, we had COVID, we had disaffiliations. And so our muscle memory is to want to go back to this rinse and repeat as it relates to discipleship. And so I don't know that I would call that surprising as much as the window is closing on the opportunity to to really innovate, to try and to fail and to do some things differently that doesn't put us back in kind of this those same cycle of metrics for discipleship, which were not always serving us well pre-COVID. Well, during COVID, whatever period of time that was, we'll say the two year, the two years of weird that, that began in March of 2020, churches in the United States and in other parts of the world really tanked. And we're still trying to figure out what's left and how is it different and so forth. But it's safe to say we lost about a third of our engagement globally during the pandemic, which means people were hanging on by a thread, probably. 
but but twelve step groups. I was so worried about that. In fact, early in the pandemic, I had a, I had a conversation with you and some of your colleagues about the recovery community moving into that season. I was really worried about them. They really adapted. They did what they had to do. They were on Zoom like in forty eight hours or whatever platform they were using. It was like the churches were stumbling around, but in recovery, they didn't have time to stumble around. They had to keep going. That's right. Why did the 12-step groups, you know, relatively speaking, thrive during the pandemic? I'll share from my experience. As you mentioned, I uh, I had the privilege of serving Mercy Street in Houston for eight years. And and I want to say on the front end of this conversation, I am someone who at different stages, has worked a 12-step program of Al-Anon for kind of my own life. And as a pastor, it was quite valuable. I'm not currently working a 12-step program. And so I consider myself, those in the 12-step program are kind of been my rabbis. And so the wisdom that I share with you today is really what I've received from them. I think one of the primary reasons that 12-step groups pivoted so quickly and really thrived during COVID was because they are crystal clear on their singleness of purpose. Mm. Any group, any 12-step group in AA, the singleness of purpose is to reach the alcoholic who still suffers. And so all the other things that a 12-step group could be concerned about, they come back time and time again to a singleness of purpose. And so I think there was a necessity. They understood the purpose They knew they needed to gather. There was something critical about being in the room together, whether that was, as you said, pivoting to Zoom pretty quickly or FaceTime or outdoor in parking lots, the necessity of being together. One of the other elements is there's really a decentralization of leadership. So no one was sitting around waiting for any one person or a committee of people to take the lead. An entire 12-step group, an AA club, an NA club really pivoted and said, we're going to figure out how to do this. And so that decentralization, I think, really was important. And as we saw going forward in COVID, my gosh, the amount of, shall we call it, feedback that pastors got as we tried to pivot to online or masks or no masks or gather or not gather, it was hard to find our singleness of purpose as a church during that time. Yeah. I think, I think the points you're making here, Melissa, are really important. We, we did have a singleness of purpose at one time. And I think some churches that had discerned that going into COVID or were fresh on that or clear on that, did a lot better than those that were not. And I have observed that across the, across the world, really. But that, that other piece about a decentralized community where the, it, the whole community comes together with kind of a common ownership of the work to be done, healthy churches have that as well. You know? mm. But boy, do we get performance-oriented and passive in many cases. And one of the things about, it seems, in a recovery group, the content, I mean, you, you, have a, you have a blue book, you have content, but it's not like a performance. And the meeting is, is, is shared by the room, almost like the way Quakers would have done back in the day. But 
it's, it's, it's a shared process as opposed to a performative thing that you could just broadcast on YouTube. You can't broadcast a recovery. I mean, it, it has to be interactive. I think along those lines, I mean, I, I know in those early days of COVID and you're preaching to an empty room and we did not have all of the technology bells and whistles in place for it to even be kind of a, a somewhat smooth broadcast of what we were doing. But there was there was this disembodiment. And so even as a preacher and even as attending worship, we know that something special is happening when we're all in that room together and we're we're sharing in the experience. But usually, as you said, the pastor or those up front are really the ones leading and bringing the content. And so it, it, it does not shift as easily into a virtual space. In the 12-step community, particularly the meeting I was attending at the time, you may have a reading from literature, you may be working on one of the steps, but immediately people it's a very embodied experience, and every person knows that they will gain something from being in the conversation as long as they're contributing, as long as they are kind of leaning in to doing some of that own their own self-reflection. And so within church, we really we were broadcasting this experience that was about, my goodness, a topic that we care about dearly. And yet it did not translate as easily. And I think, to your point, it revealed how much either biblical teaching or preaching or worship had become disembodied even when we were in the room together. Well, there are are many places where they slash we have lost touch with our foundation, our roots, our purpose, and we've sort of been on missional drift. That did not help us going into COVID, for sure. If, If... if, if, we were, if we were really drifting. One of the things about recovery community is that in every gathering, not, not, not in every group, but in many of them, in every gathering, I have a chance to introduce myself. Hi, I'm Paul. I'm an alcoholic, which is to own my stuff, to be transparent about why I'm there. And we have these collective confession prayers, you know, they're kind of snoozers, but it's not the same as going around the room, <laughs> you know, and, and saying, I'm Paul, and I struggled this week, you know, not to bite the head off of the grocery store clerk because I was, you know, I'd had a flat tire before I got there or whatever the case is. We don't, we don't do well at owning our stuff within the Christian gathering, I think in, in times because we're always trying to pretend that we're okay. And if there's something about the high, you, you know, at least on paper, the high moral standards of the Christian faith that we don't want to admit that we're struggling at any of. So it really works against authenticity. People are scared of spaces in which they would have to own their stuff. But in the recovery community, owning your stuff is a given. It's just what you do. It's, while you're there. That's right. Yeah. It's interesting. So if as pastors, preachers, there had become a performative element in worship and gathering together, then as a congregation, perhaps that translated as well. I'm going to put my best foot forward. I'm going to 
bring you the content that I think you're you're wanting to hear. And it was one of the great gifts of of serving Mercy Street. I actually found Mercy Street as a young adult when I was working in banking. And what kept me coming back was I'd never heard that many people in church tell the truth. Mm. And so the level of authenticity. And so I, I think that's a a muscle that within the church we really in a very careful way need to begin to develop. And so by way of example in sermon illustrations and stories. I I told the story one time of I was late getting to church that weekend because I had stopped at the Starbucks to pick up my coffee. I'd done the mobile app, so I get there in plenty of time. And when I got there, the order wasn't ready, five minutes, 10 minutes. Finally, they said, we don't have your, your mobile order. And I wish I could say I responded with the words of Jesus of (laughs) Bless you, my child. (laughs) To which I threw a really big temper tantrum, got in my car, and realized I had ordered a drink at another Starbucks. So I hadn't even placed the order at the right. Anyway, that type of content was just regular. but and, And it wasn't just to kind of say, hey, I'm human too. But it was to say, unless I am grounded in this work that we're doing together, my trigger, my fuse is so short, is so quick to move towards blame. And I think we, we found during COVID of everything that was going on and both politically in our landscape, the church just realized she was losing more and more power and influence. And we just had a hard time of just telling the truth of that it was making us crazy. It makes us upset. It makes us feel like we're losing something. And Within the recovery community, that powerlessness, man, it is it is the key to realizing life has become unmanageable. You know, I think about my grandmother did not like to go to church. And a part of it was she didn't like to dress up in that way. And she was the original pantsuit lady. I mean, way back, like in the <laughs> Okay. And she didn't like dressing up. So usually what when she would go to church, she had a couple of dresses and she would put one on and she would go and she would move her letter to the new church, get the girls enrolled in Sunday school, and then you wouldn't see her again. Sort of like going to the light company and you know turning on the lights. But be, beneath that, as you got to know her more, it was the it was the the way that those clothes symbolized sort of putting your best face forward, but but also the the lack of safe safety to be vulnerable and to communicate the way that she could with her next door neighbors and with other people in her lives that they got really real about marriage and kids and you know all the scary stuff so she just was not able to find that at church it's a it's a terrible shame it was a faithful woman in many ways but she never could find that at church i just wonder we don't dress up quite to the nines like we used to but do we still come into that space with a sort of a, 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 a performative approach that really has been killing us for decades now. I mean, decades. And it did not, it, it did not play well or adapt well into the COVID era. No. Yeah. And the irony of a much more 
performative system is that even as we continue to count metrics, we keep moving the shells of saying, well, our metrics aren't great, and no, it's it's not average worship attendance, and what is online, and it, even in the performance, when we use counting and metrics to say how we're doing in our performance, we even dismiss that. And so the whole paradigm, I think we're seeing is has to shift and is shifting. Now, what is it shifting to? And as you said, is it are these spaces where we can be just as honest about our doubts as we are about the creeds that we say? Are these spaces in which we can say in loving God and loving neighbor, I, this week, I have not done so well on not doing harm to my neighbor. Mm. And to be able to bring the substance of that into our shared life, congregational life. And so in a 12-step community, it's not only the sharing, it's not only the authenticity, the confession, immediately brought alongside that is this pathway of recovery. And so it's the confession and then the step towards transformation. And far too many times within church, we're so focused on what the content is and if the content is good or bad, and we lose that transformative piece to be able to say, this week when once again I ordered at the wrong Starbucks on the app or they didn't have my steelhead trout at the grocery store like I thought they were going to or they were out of black beans and you know what? This week, I didn't lose it as quickly as I did last week. I had practices that kept me grounded. I had in the realm of of 12-step community, I had a sponsor. I had someone that I could call and just take it out on them and not on someone else. And so there is so much from the recovery community that I think we can weave into our life of discipleship, our ecology as a church. If you join a church, especially if you're new, maybe you're new to faith, a lot of churches have various ways of pairing you, partnering you with people that are a little bit ahead of you on the journey who become sponsors or mentors or so forth. But it's the only time I ever see it is when we're getting started. It's almost like orientation. In the recovery community, is it normal at 20 years in to still have a sponsor? Mm, yes. Okay. If well, you're if you're lucky well, enough to to be in a space where there's a, a lot of old timers, but absolutely yes, you never lose that you're sponsoring others and you have a sponsor yourself. Well, that that in itself would be something for those that are listening to this podcast to ponder. Is like you know how could we rethink the way that we create a sense of accountability and healthy interconnectedness with one another for our spiritual journey. I love that. Yeah. And not just on the front end with orientation or new member classes. Yeah. Yeah. As if you're going to be fine, you know, four, four months in, you, you found your niche, you're in the choir, we got you on the finance committee, you'll be fine. <laughs> yeah. You've reached the height of discipleship. <laughs> <laughs> so two crazy things two like hurricanes that conflated and became one superstorm. We had COVID, you know, spinning around and that was, a, that walloped us. And then we had the disaffiliation stuff that happened about the same time. And both of those things, it strikes me, were deeply impacted by a polarizing political climate and the great difficulties 
that people were having relating to one another across this 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 chasm that was I mean it's affected families it surely affected churches those both of those issues got politicized in ways that were unfortunate and in ways that were really tragic but all of that was I mean the same political polarization was going on everywhere and how have the recovery communities managed to mitigate the impact of that stuff getting in the room and spoiling what we're trying to do in the room? I think it goes back to that singleness of purpose. There are very clear guidelines, principles, almost guardrails within every 12-step group, certainly on what you Groups cannot speak on behalf of the entire group. They don't sponsor. So there's there's not this kind of complexity of affiliations. And in some ways, that singleness of purpose, again, should translate quite well for the local church. It becomes a little bit more sticky because as local congregations, we are involved in the community. We do want to take a stand for justice. We want to be able to work on ministries together that bring about dignity and relief and mutuality and wholeness. And so it's it's recapturing that singleness of purpose. I, I heard of a, an example recently in another annual conference where a congregation, if they would have voted, it would have been 50-50, and so it would not have met the the bar for disaffiliation. And it would have like it has in many congregations, it would have really just destroyed the church. But what happened was the two pastors who happened to be on different sides of our denominational debate and allegiances, those pastors, along with a leadership team over the course of months, and they would probably tell you years, really engaged in hard and difficult conversations. And what they kept coming back to, maybe they didn't use the words, but their singleness of purpose for how the life of the church would survive in this particular town. And so they avoided a vote. They most recently did an entire blessing service for the gentleman who's going to leave the United Methodist Church and start his own thing. They, kind of like Abraham and Lot, said, Take take what you want. What are, what are you going to need in this new ministry? And so it, it wasn't kumbaya. It wasn't all easy, but it was hours of wrestling together, and they had a singleness of purpose. And I, th- I think that's where we've, we've just lost it, or we've traded in our singleness of purpose for a version of holiness or righteousness that just so happens to align for us. And so then you look at Jesus's teachings with Sadducees and Pharisees, and he comes back to and he says, look, love God, love neighbor. That is the greatest commandment. And how we do that, how we do that is going to matter the most. And so our public witness, particularly in the church writ large, but in the UMC, our public witness, we have a lot of repairing to do for how we have treated one another. Yeah, you say public witness is an interesting term. I mean, when it, in the story you just told, there was a church that they were going through sort of a split, but because of the work they were doing behind the scenes, they were able to manage that and to show up publicly. And the word that came to me was with class. Mm. I mean, if there's anything that the community, both within the church and others would see is that, yeah, um, there's some differences there, but man, they were classy about it, you know? 
and and that's a that's a good thing. You know, that's a very positive public witness. But it, but it, as you say, it grew out of the hard work of relationship behind the scenes with people that that were coming from different places and were choosing to find ways that they could be church together. Yeah. Making a parallel back to the recovery community, and I'll, I'll be kind of, what's the term? Getting over my skis? <laughs> I don't ski. <laughs> Getting out of my lane. When a, perhaps a particular group wants to break off and form a new AA club or NA club or a new 12-step group, I, I know there are different processes, but but sometimes what ends up happening if the group as a whole is not practicing their principles in all their affairs, including a group that wants to kind of branch off and do something different, start something new, uh, some of those same trends of polarization can show up there as well. But it's, yeah, it was, that's a rather classy example. It's a, it's a rather kingdom of God. Yeah. Family of God, gracious. I mean, many of those in the, in the congregation would tell you, my gosh, we've, we all have a lot of scars from going through this process together, but we really like where we ended up overall to be able to bless one another. You know, in the multicultural, multi-ethnic church, when, whenever a significant piece of the overall group is Anglo, they're used to people stopping and listening and taking seriously their ideas. And, you know, I mean, it's just, there's just certain assumptions that come with, you know, with, with, with that life experience that some would call privilege and so forth. But you, if you have a multi-ethnic staff, you're going to, you're going to hit that speed bump real fast and you're going to work through it. You're going to, you're, you're going to do, and it's not easy. It's, and it, and it, people may get upset, but you're going to do that work around your, t- your leadership table. And if you do the work around the leadership table, it's, it's, it just continues to amaze me how it just tends to give capacity to the rest of the group, even if it's thousands of people, to be able to do the same work because you're modeling that and it just becomes a part of the DNA. That's exactly right. Yeah. I was worshiping in one of our new, call them new church labs, Mm-hmm. These new church starts because they're laboratories of learning and and they're helping us kind of rethink discipleship. But it was really interesting. They have they've landed on their core values, and they sh- have shared those with the congregation. They began to take that work that they had done together and how it kind of infiltrates into all of their ministries. And I loved that this past Sunday it was a it was not their regular worship leader. It was uh, another member of the congregation. And and so she had written a preamble, if you will, to the creed. And 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 basically it said, we, we're going to proclaim these words together. And we recognize there are some of you here today that you can, you're not going to miss a syllable. You have said this creed your entire life. There are others, this will be your very first time. And so just take it slow. And then there'll be others here where you, you don't know how much of this you really believe anymore. And so what we're going to do in a moment as we read it together is we're going to do this authentically. That was one of their values. Mm-hmm. And so it had created this, again, it, it wasn't performative for that worship leader. She felt the freedom and the permission to kind of welcome everyone into the historic creed. She named, I'm sure, her own experience that there are times where she has said, 
the words and wasn't sure if she still meant them. But somehow the leadership in this church had created space for people to bring their true selves. Mm. And she wasn't rewriting the creed, <laughs> just like in the rooms of 12 Steps. I mean, it's, it's not up for debate that you're going to rewrite things. But how you hold them on any particular day, this isn't about performance. This is about participation. This is not about personality. This is about the singleness of purpose. I just love that. And you're right. It creates a ripple effect in not only the congregation, but hopefully within the community as well. See, authenticity in that community you described was a value, a, a practice value. And values, too often, we, we, we sort of conflate them with programmatic things we do. But if it's really a value, it's, it goes deeper than a programmatic thing we do. We might stop that thing. Or maybe COVID makes, means we, we can't even do that thing for the next month or year or whatever. But the value remains, and the value will come out in other ways. If, if hospitality, for example is a value. It's not just that we're going to to show up on time to welcome people coming in the door and to give them a piece of paper and, you know, and no, no. And be sure the donuts are ready. That's all, that's all good. But if hospitality is a value, then welcoming is just what it's something that we deeply believe is at the core of life. Absolutely. And so there's organic welcoming that's going to happen if it's a value that's not programmed just because it just will because it's yeah. a, because the group is living into that value and people will invent ways to be hospitable with one another just out of their own, their own context and their, and, and that's to me, it's, it's sometimes it's not necessarily the, the content of our creeds, but it's the values we live that are most interesting and engaging. So in the AA world or the just the 12-step world, what might be some core values? That maybe they come out in some of the steps or not, but what are two or three of the core values that just get lived in that world? Mm. Yeah, and I, I would recommend for uh, pastors, church leaders that are listening in that you check out the 12 and 12, the 12 steps and the 12 principles. It's a great resource. And so I won't try to summarize that, but I think a couple of the values, number one, the the saying is, I got drunk, we got sober, or we get sober, mm -hmm. that this is a participatory, that we are walking this pathway together, and we're going to do so with honesty, with willingness, with authenticity, with truth-telling, and we're doing all of that for our own transformation, but oh, by the way— my transformation is dependent upon your transformation. So these are not kind of siloed journeys. I think the value of recognizing our, in the 12-step world, our powerlessness, and oh, by the way, that's the heart of the gospel as well, but that's a, that's a very vulnerable thing to feel powerless, to feel like we're not sure how to have influence. But naming it, is a lifestyle and a choice mm -hmm. rather than escaping it or running from it or trying to sweep it under the rug. That's right. And then beginning to do those things, you realize the car, it, the, the, one of the sayings is, doesn't matter how far down the road you go, the ditch is always the same distance away. 
And so as your car gets kind of pointed in an off direction, yeah, to, to realize that we're powerless over all of these attachments. Well, there is so much that we can learn as Christians and as faith community conveners from these very intentional and mission-focused fellowships that have thrived through great turmoil of circumstances. They have been robust and they have been resilient in ways that our churches have not been. At the same time, they teach us that just because it's 2023 doesn't mean that spiritual community is no longer possible. Just because it's 2023 doesn't mean that accountability on a scale and, a, and an intensity of what we saw in the early Methodist class meetings is not possible. We are living in a moment when a lot of the forms of what we've been doing in terms of gathering for church life, they're failing. They're just failing to engage. But it may not be so much a reflection on people have changed as it is that, that our context is a little different and we, ha- we apply it differently. But people are still people and they are capable of going on the journeys that we are here to invite them on. And that's not fading, even, even as churches right now are fading as an influence in culture. Absolutely. And I, I consider it a privilege that I, I get a front row seat of seeing what the Spirit is currently stirring in the hearts of folks. It's does, well, we as the church have a willingness to say that, you know what, we're, we're kind of powerless over our addiction to being a performative kind of institution from being the place that had privilege and status and impact and I, I disagree with anyone who says that there is this hostility towards churches. Maybe that was the case right now. I just don't know that folks really think about them too much. They just seem irrelevant. <laughs> and, and yet, a group of people called and by the, the, the Spirit of the living God and walking in the footsteps of the resurrected Jesus with some sort of authenticity and joy— I mean, I, I tell you what, I've heard a lot of heartbreaking stories within our Mercy Street community, but I've never laughed that much in a congregation mm. either. As a local church, if we're willing to kind of lay down some of these forms and really kind of re-embrace our truth-telling first and foremost about ourselves, and then be willing to to listen and be open to the wisdom that can be found in other places. We've done a really good job of looking to business culture and strategy for wisdom. And I think that served us well for a time being, but a strategic plan right now is a six-month plan. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and any anything beyond that really is silly. Is open to a lot of a lot of change. <laughs> what were you saying? Silly. Silly. There we go. It's just I mean, what, what's the point? It is great to be with you today. Tell us again the resource you shared just a moment ago and any other resources you think would be helpful for Christian leaders, pastors, and others to maybe have a, take a look at as we think about how the recovery community could be helpful to churches. Absolutely. So the 12 and 12, which is the 12 steps, 12 principles, 
I highly recommend that. A book that actually a lot of churches over the last several years have been using, Breathing Underwater by Father Richard Rohr, which Mm -hmm. takes a look at spirituality and recovery. That's a great, great resource, especially for small group Sunday school classes. It really invites robust conversation. And then I would encourage pastors to attend an open AA or an open Al-Anon meeting just like we would go and and visit another congregation and kind of see what are the cool bells and whistles they're doing in worship. Trust me, it will be life-giving to your soul, and if you're willing, maybe even life-saving to your soul to attend an open 12-step meeting, and those are really easy to find in your neck of the woods. Um, And you can go in person, and chances are you'll probably see someone from your congregation, and it might be the most uplifting thing that, that they could experience seeing you there, or you can also join uh, virtually on Zoom. So, Paul, you've been an incredible influence in my life, my goodness, these last eight or nine years, and so it's so good to connect again. Thank you, and you have been an influence on mine as well. I'm Paul Nixon. This is the Churches Changing Podcast. I'm here with Melissa Meyer, and we have had a conversation today about the recovery community and its thriving and what it can teach churches in this beautiful, challenging age for ministry. Thanks, Melissa, for joining us. And thanks, everybody else, for joining us. And we would remind you that Church is Changing is a ministry of the United Methodist Church. Church is Changing podcast is a production of Discipleship Ministries, an agency of the United Methodist Church. Music is by Sanjay Singh. Visit all our podcasts at podcast.umcdiscipleship.org.